primary reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was provoked against that generation, and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word of the Lord. At some point, uh, most of us have been an employee in what is known as a toxic work environment. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, it basically describes the unpleasantness, not of the job per se, uh, but the people that you have to work with to do your job. Like, in fact, the job might be great, uh, but there's something about the work culture that's sabotaging it. Management, HR, colleagues, that one coworker who insists on bringing her emotional support chihuahua, right? Like, which technically she can do, but you're like tired of stepping in the messes. Really specific, I know. Um, there, there, there's lots of reasons you may have found yourself in a toxic work environment, but the way you know you are in one is that if the primary source of toxicity is transferred or fired or just quits, suddenly you magically find yourself liking your job again because the problem never really was the work itself, it was the people. In our primary reading today, our likely author of Hebrews, Apollos, has just completed this rhetorical crescendo of elevating his audience to a level of honor that would have shocked them. Apollos has been so bold to say that because of Jesus, we have not just been granted access to the house of God, but that we ourselves are now the house. We are the temple of God, and the Son of God resides in us. This should give us a great sense of privilege, a a great confidence to know that this is our true identity. But for the next two weeks, Apollos, in classic Greco-Roman rhetorical fashion, is going to balance these great affirmations with great warnings. And he's going to do this, again, by appealing to stories from Jewish scriptures that his Jewish Christian audience would have known so well. And so last week he compared Moses to Jesus, and therefore this week he is going to compare the people under Moses to the people under Jesus, a.k.a. the church. However, Apollos will do this not as an allegorizer, but as a spiritualizer. Because for Apollos, he doesn't see this generation of the church simply as having metaphorical similarities to the first generation that God liberated from slavery, but rather a spiritual redux of that redemption drama that played out 1,500 years before him. I might wonder where exactly this story is in today's text, because it's not self-evident, But what Apollos does here is quite brilliant. 
he actually quotes a large section from Psalm 95 at length, which Apollo says the Holy Spirit worked through the psalmist King David as he penned it. But this is an odd song, because the first half of Psalm 95 is a praise song. We actually opened with that in our call to worship this morning. It perfectly parallels that ecstatic feeling that Apollos gave us last week in elevating us with glory and honor with Christ. But the second half of Psalm 95 gets a little dark, talking about hardening our hearts rebellion, going astray, and God's wrath. Not exactly the kind of stuff that's going to give us the warm Holy Ghost worship feelings, like, hey, God's wrath. Right, Aaron, maybe you can write that. No, we won't do that song here. Okay, we're not conservative Presbyterians. Um, Now, the second half of Psalm 95, though, is what King David also wrote. And he recounts this as something that happened in Exodus 17, which was our first reading this morning. So what goes down in Exodus 17? Well, Moses is leading the longest road trip in history, and his kids are in the back seat, a.k.a. the Hebrew people, and they basically just keep asking, are we there yet, and I want snacks. Now, if you're a parent, you can really relate to Moses those few times where he asked God just to kill him instead of finishing the trip with these people. But Moses hangs in there. However, in this particular episode, the Hebrews are like, I am so thirsty. I want water. Make magic water happen. And to be fair, this is kind of on par with the Exodus course so far, except for in this situation, it gets out of hand. Let's look at verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then they cried out to the Lord, Moses did, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now again, parents, you may think it's annoying to have your kids with you on some road trips, and that may be true, but at least when you run out of juice boxes, they do not try to stone you. But also note the accusation here. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die? I always think that last one's really funny, right? Because like, if you're dead and your kids are dead, like, why do you care about your livestock? They just love their livestock back then. I don't get it, but... Seriously, though, the biggest problem that the liberated Hebrews experience after they are freed from slavery in Egypt, it was not material hardships. It it wasn't the the desert weather. It it wasn't the, the enemy nations that were before them. It wasn't the harassing tribes that were around them. No, instead, it was constantly struggling to trust that God was still with them. Moses quotes them in verse 7. He says that they said, Is the Lord among us or not? The Hebrews' biggest problem was a failure to trust, to imagine, to hope that God was still at work in their community. Like at some point they believed, right? Like they, they saw it with their own eyes. But now, for for some reason, 
Maybe God's just moved on to another project. Right? Maybe God has bailed on them and now he's helping out the Edomites over there on the other side of the desert. But the thing is, this failure to trust that God was still at work in their community did not spontaneously erupt. It wasn't like the 12 tribes were like 100% full of faith one day and then the next day they were getting ready to stone Moses. No. The Hebrews developed a toxic spiritual environment that was constantly erupting with conflict and distrust. Because look at today's story. There is no one ringleader mentioned, which means that this is the result of a number of individuals. But also look at the language here. What is the catalyst for all this? It's not dramatic sin. It's not a planned coup. It's not atheism. What is it? Quarrels. Grumbling. That's it. This could be your average dysfunctional workplace. But that's all it takes. And for those of you who have worked in toxic work environments before, you know that's all you need to make a job that you would otherwise enjoy and make it become miserable. Y'all, it's not that different in the church. The church can be a spiritual community of growth and healing that brings flourishing to people, or it can become a place of quarreling and grumbling that causes harm to people. But here's the thing I think most people don't realize, is that when we say that, we're not talking about two different churches. This can be the same church with the same worship, same preaching, same doctrine. The same church can experience either of those dynamics at different points within a short span of time. Apollos then is trying to communicate a really important spiritual reality and a really important sociological reality to his Jewish Christian church in Rome. The spiritual reality is this. Israel's story out of Egypt and into the wilderness is the church's story out of Jerusalem and into the Roman Empire. In Egypt, God defeated slavery and the power of Pharaoh. In Jerusalem, Jesus defeated sin and the power of Satan. Once rescued, God sent the Hebrews out to reveal God to the nations. Once rescued, Jesus sent the disciples to preach the gospel to the nations. And finally, as the Hebrews begin to journey into these new lands, they encounter resistance from pagan nations and tribes. This is their wilderness experience. And yet, as the first Christians are dispersed into new lands, they also encounter resistance from a pagan government and culture. This is their wilderness experience. And so for Apollos, God allowed the first story to be written, not as an allegory, but as a prophecy. As, as a prophecy and as a means for supplying the early church with the necessary historical wisdom to preserve it when otherwise they might be tempted to give up. The church can read their story into Israel's story. I think that's helpful for us even today. 
One, because I think it can help us read the Old Testament less as like a rule book that we kind of awkwardly pick and choose from. But also because I think it can give us some sense of direction should we ever feel lost in our own spiritual wilderness. It means that we are not the first ones. That we, we don't have to make this up as we go. Other people have gone before us. God has gone with them. And we can have confidence that God is going with us. So that's the spiritual reality. But here's the sociological reality. The rebellion of the Hebrews in the desert wilderness then is a diagnosis of what kills churches today. Now, despite what you may think about all the churches closing these days, churches are actually surprisingly resilient. In fact, when you look at the data, almost all churches survive disasters and the loss of their building. They, they worship in new places and they rebuild. Uh, churches almost always survive scandals and staff misconduct. Hopefully the offenders get removed, hopefully, and people heal in time. Even neighborhood demographic changes don't kill churches. You literally have decades, typically, to figure that out. I mean, if the COVID pandemic showed us anything about church resilience, is that churches are surprisingly good at adapting. They find ways to survive. And so if this is true, then what would most likely ruin Parkside Church one day will not be some big disaster or scandal, or demographic change, pandemic, or some schism on a doctrinal issue. No, I'm not worried about those things. No, instead, it will be a death by a thousand cuts of quarrels and grumbling. A church that becomes a toxic spiritual environment eats itself from within. It plateaus and then declines. And then when it gets to that point of death, then everyone blames some big bad event. Oh, it wasn't us, it was that thing. It becomes a satisfying, emotionally feel-good, but inaccurate scapegoat. Also, I should mention, if you're just visiting today, I want you to know that this is not us now. Um, like, if you're showing up and this is like the first sermon, I just realized this. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you might be like, uh, is there something you want to tell us today? Um, truly, I'm very excited about the future of this church, and I am seeing God at work in so many places. But here's why I want us to be vigilant about a toxic spiritual environment. Because should this ever happen, on the surface, it will look like we are doing everything right. The worship preaching doctrine the mimosas will be delicious as ever right but the quarrels and grumbling will slowly take our eyes off the mission to share good news and be good news our quarrels and grumbling will slowly remove our ability to sense where the holy spirit is at work and we may not say out loud, is the Lord among us or not? But we'll act like the Lord isn't. And we'll be more focused on the person that we want to stone than the God that we want to serve. 
So with that pair of lenses, the spiritual and sociological realities, let's look at verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Y'all, I don't think Apollos is warning them that there's someone secretly evil among them or that they got to make sure everyone believes the same thing. This isn't a warning about being skeptical or deconstructing. I don't think evil, unbelieving heart is referring to a person who has a long list of personal struggles and sin. I think it's the person who has a long list of complaints and grievances. It isn't referring to the person who feels like they don't have enough faith or certainty. It's referring to the person who feels like they don't have enough power and control. So what's the antidote to this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It's not the pendulum swing. Because some churches, in order to combat this drift into a toxic spiritual environment, they'll try to whitewash over everything, right? Everything's positive all the time. Good vibes only. So the people who have concerns, not about the petty stuff, but things like the effectiveness of ministry or the integrity of leadership, or advancing the gospel, then they all get dismissed. But you know what? Every time I've seen this play out, it wasn't because people were overly positive. It was because people were scared. They were scared that if the boat was rocked too much and the church might take on too much negative water. And yeah, if you view your church more as a cruise ship than a rescue boat, well then of course you're going to want to make the voyage as smooth as possible. Otherwise someone might ask for a refund. So I want to be clear about this. Apollos is not against conflict here. In fact, his letter to the Jewish Christians is inherently conflictual. Not only that, but forced positivity is its own kind of toxic spiritual environment because it doesn't reflect the painful reality that is life sometimes. In our Exodus story, the Hebrews experience real struggle, real difficulty. It's not made up. They are short on water. That is a legitimate problem. So yes, there will be legitimate problems in any church. There will be legitimate struggles in your life. There will be legitimate disagreements and difficulties with other people. So what's the balance then? Well, Apollos is wonderfully compassionate here. Look at our final line in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word that the ESV translates as exhort in the Greek is this word parakalite. And it only appears three times in the whole of the New Testament and only once in Hebrews. It means to both comfort and encourage. So what should we do when our fellow congregants are struggling with life? Comfort and encourage. Okay, but, but what if their struggles, it's actually a lot of bad decisions and personal sin. What should we do? Comfort and encourage. 
Okay, yeah, but how do we stop any of the, the quarrels and the grumbling? Comfort and encourage. Apollo says that the best approach to prevent a toxic spiritual environment, one that is either too negative or too falsely positive, comfort and encourage. This is because comforting meets us in the reality of our struggles, but encouragement points us to a day where we will one day overcome them. But that's not the only important truth to extract from verse 13. Because what does Apollos mean by as long as it is called today? It's kind of an odd line, isn't it? But what Apollos is saying is this, that until the day Christ returns, there is always hope. There's always hope for you. There's always hope for a Christian community. In fact, the famous 4th century church leader, John Chrysostom, he explains it this way. I really love it. He said today that they might never be without hope. Exhort one another daily, he says. That is, even if persons have sinned, as long as it is today, they have hope. Let them not then despair so long as they live. Above all things, indeed, he says, let there not be an evil, unbelieving heart. But even if there should be, let no one despair. But let that one recover. For as long as we are in the world, the today is in season. Friends, hear this good news. When we act on the hope that Christ is at work today, and every day, we will not anxiously say, we won't worry, is the Lord among us or not? Because we will experience the Lord among us, through us, through a community of comfort and encouragement. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, let us go to God in prayer and confession. Would you pray with me?
Those were some beautiful runs. Okay, Colin. Is the extortion to comfort or extortion? Wow. Yeah, sorry. That's <laughs> where my mind is this morning. Exhortation to comfort and encourage only internal to the church and its members, or is there an outward component? Com great, great question. Um, so in this particular context, it is internal, right? So this is a mandate for the church and the community, because this is the, as a community, right, we've covenant together to do this thing. And so this is him saying, all right, this is for the people of God to treat each other in this way. That being said, comforting and encouraging people as a general life practice and as a disposition, uh, I think is pretty good. And I think it'd be pretty amazing that if we weren't just known as a church for comforting and encouraging one another, but people are like, oh yeah, the Christians, they're, they're really big comforters and encouragers. Like that was our, our, our rep, right, in the, in the community. I think that would be a wonderful reputation to have. So contextually, it's for the community, but yes, it's a good practical life lifestyle. Easy for the twos in the house. Yeah. All right. At what point do we draw the line between a quarrelsome person that we should comfort and encourage and a person that we should walk away from because they're just too toxic for us? Mm, yeah, that's okay. So there's no magic line, right? Uh, but I think one of the important parts here is that this comforting and encouraging is a communal process again, right? Mm -hmm. So we tend to go like, okay, it's, then it's my job to do all the comforting and encouraging. And yes, it is on you to an extent, right? But this is this is the community. And so I think with some people who might be kind of leaning into toxicity, right, on for some level, they're, they're quarreling, they're grumbling, right? It's not just up to you to be like, oh, well, I'm going to make them happy, right? It is a communal process in which we all participate. And it, frankly, I think there, you cannot fix anybody, typically. It, when I see change in a community and when I see people flourishing, it's because multiple people have encouraged and comforted a person and begun to turn their attitude around. So I think that's one thing to note. And then the second part is, right, um, this is, I think, Apollos is like, this is my best practice, but it's not the only practice, right? So it doesn't exclude boundaries. It doesn't exclude, uh, you know, even church discipline, right? Like, there are sometimes people who are committed to being toxic, right? And that's where you have to set up boundaries. But Apollos is basically saying, like, this should be our go-to starting point. And then, yeah, we can work at some other issues down the road. All right, last one. In verse 311, God sounds very human and petty. What are we supposed to do with that? First, okay, is that the one I swore in my anger? Um, You're asking the wrong person. Oh, man, someone tried to get me to... <laughs> Sorry. Um, I don't know. Someone's going to throw the Bible verse up there. Tech team, looking no. at you. I'm probably, no, go with your gut. Go with your go gut. With gut. Um, up, up, God, I don't even think... So, there we go. All right. Therefore, I was provoked... Okay, great. It's stated in my head, they will not know my ways, and I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, this is, uh, well, it's Apollos quoting David, who's quoting from Leviticus. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is God actually, like when you read Exodus, God has a very emotional and tumultuous relationship with the Hebrew people. Um, and again, as we read into Exodus stories, we have to realize that this is the Hebrew people uh, anthropomorphizing God and giving God a personality because they're in this, like, literally Israel means to wrestle, right? Yeah. And so I think uh, the way in which they re recount the story, they add some personality to God that we might not necessarily be like, oh, was God having a bad day? No, I think God was just 
you know, this is them remembering God. So take it with a grain of salt that this is adding some color to a story that is 1,500 years old, and they are trying to create a personality for God. So this is a, a personal recount. But that's, that's a, that's a, I'm going to do that one tomorrow more. Because, uh, yeah, that is one thing that I'm glad somebody asked about. Good. All yeah, right. that was an amazing answer, Colin. Really? I'm, I, I think I totally stumbled always impressed with your theologic knowledge and just, like, I, you went deep there. I appreciate Thanks, it. That Sam, was you're, amazing. You're nice. All right. <laughs> All right. If y'all have any other questions or questions about the questions, feel free to text them in and Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook Live. So also follow us on Facebook. Awesome. All right, friends, thank you very much for those questions. And now let us stand and join our voices together. We sing the Sanctus and prepare for communion. <laughs>